Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today I'll be talking about Season 6, Episode 9, Smashed, where Willow brings Amy back, the trio uses a freeze ray, and Spike discovers his chip no longer keeps him from fighting Buffy. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with a breakdown of Smashed, I'll talk about whether this is a complete plot in itself or is part one of a story arc that finishes in Wrecked. Why Buffy finally lets herself act on her attraction to Spike and what the circumstances around it say about the characters and the themes of the episode. In what ways Willow's and Buffy's arcs mirror one another and when they diverge. And finally, who is the protagonist in the Buffy and Spike story? There will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Smashed aired the first time on November 20, 2001. It was written by Drew Z. Greenberg and directed by Turi Meyer. And I'll be sharing some highlights from the commentary on the DVD edition by Drew Z. Greenberg. The episode starts with an opening conflict. In a dark alley, a couple cowers from two dark figures. Buffy intervenes, kicks one of them, and realizes that he's human. She says, wow, a mugging. I haven't gotten one of those in a while. And goes on to call it a good old-fashioned mugging. Kind of sweet, actually, though probably not for you, she says to the two people who are the victims. She then tells the muggers, come on, rush me. It'll be funny. Buffy is joking around a little bit like the old Buffy, but her tone is a bit different. I found it more muted and less like she's really enjoying it. Andrew Greenberg said they started this episode quippy to bring some lightness back to Buffy because they knew they would veer her back to the darkness at the end. He also noted this was the first Buffy episode he wrote. You can tell in the commentary he is still super excited about it. Spike now joins the fight and gets a migraine because he attacks the muggers thinking that they are demons. Buffy makes fun of him for not knowing the difference, though it took her a second to figure it out herself. When he says remind him not to help her, she says more often. And then he comments that at least if the government was going to put a chip in his head, they could have had an exception for criminals. And Buffy responds, yes, because muggers deserve to be eaten. She follows up by saying he'll have to get his rocks off fighting demons. He suggests other ways he could do that and she walks off. He follows her and Buffy says, Spike, it's late, okay? Can we just finish this another time? And Spike says, so you wanna jump right to the kissing then, eh? She tells him she's not kissing him. 
And she starts to say that once was enough, and he cuts in twice. And Buffy says, but not again. Spike then tells her, you're a tease, you know that, Slayer? Get a fellow's motor revving, let the tension marinate a couple of days, then bam, crown yourself the ice queen. And now Buffy says, need a few more metaphors for that little mix? That is one of my favorite lines because I always enjoy that the characters on Buffy are very aware of language. This scene is also a great example of getting out exposition through conflict. We find out so much about Buffy and Spike in the exchange between them, in the scene with muggers. And now he tells her it's only a matter of time before she sees that he's the only one there for her. She's got no one else. To me, this is the biggest spike shift that we have seen so far this season. I've always read it and disliked it because it's a very abusive sort of thing to say. This is what abusers often do is try to isolate the other person, often a woman, make her feel like there is no one else for her, that that he's the only one there for her. Later on, Greenberg will comment more on the relationship, and it makes me think that that subtext perhaps was not intentional, that it was not meant to be showing Spike trying to isolate Buffy and pull her away from her friends. If that was not the intent, I would like something that alluded more to the fact that Spike has genuinely been there for her. If he's meaning to say, look, I'm the one you talked to, I'm the one you shared your feelings with, I'm the one you told the truth to, then that works for me with the character of Spike as he's been developed because he really has been there for Buffy. And while he is still certainly a dark character, I've never really bought that that what he wants is to make Buffy feel more alone. At least until very recently this season, he has tried to help her feel better and deal with her feelings, not tried to double down on her isolation. But the line is a really good segue because at 2 minutes 21 seconds, the scene cuts to Willow, who is alone in her bedroom in the dark. So she certainly feels there is no one there for her. She talks to Amy the rat, who's in the cage, and talks about maybe Amy is lonely. She could get her a companion rat, but then that rat will just leave, quote, for no good reason end quote. Willow starts musing aloud about if only she could figure out how to turn Amy back into a person. And then something hits her and Willow says, reveal it. And a parchment with a spell appears. Willow reads it. At three minutes, 41 seconds, the rat turns into Amy. She is on the bed naked, her arms around her knees, very much like she appeared momentarily in something blue when Willow didn't realize that she had brought Amy back. But Amy now screams. And we go to credits. In the DVD commentary, Greenberg said how excited he was that this first episode he got to write had two huge plot developments for the season, deriding Amy and getting Spike and Buffy together. On the return from the credits, it'll be 4 minutes 41 seconds, which is right about 10% through the episode, a little bit past. And that's where normally we would see a story spark or inciting incident, or we'd see it 
earlier. For Willow's story, I think de-ratting Amy is definitely it. The fact that she figures it out and now Amy is there and is this friend who can do magic and goes down that path with Willow encouraging her. For Buffy, I am less sure what sets off her story. What we go into next is the geek trio. And they have a not even quite a subplot here, more of developments in their season arc. So it's interesting that that is what begins at the 10% mark. On the DVD, Greenberg said that the way the writer's room works is that together they meet and they figure out what will happen in the episode, but then how it happens is a WP, a writer's problem. So it was up to him to pitch what kind of caper the three geeks would do in this episode. They just knew there would be some sort of caper. Greenberg pitched the idea of a Mission Impossible takeoff with Andrew descending from the ceiling on pulleys, and then the idea of the other two, Warren and Andrew, just walk into the museum that's where the heist is taking place and showing that there was absolutely no need for that Mission Impossible thing. Andrew just wanted to do it. Andrew's trying to get into a glass display case. Warren pushes him aside, uses a torch to cut a circle in the glass and grabs the giant diamond. At five minutes, 56 seconds, the guard confronts them. Warren claims they're lost. They're with a tour group, the quote, get the freeze ray tour group, end quote. The other two don't get it. And Warren goes on that they should quote, get the freeze ray out of here now, end quote. He stares at the others, and finally they scramble to get the freeze ray as Warren talks to the guard, blocking the guard's view of the broken diamond case. Jonathan shoots. The guard literally freezes ice all over him and also all over Jonathan's arm and trigger hand. This is a prototype not working so well yet. As they leave, Andrew starts to ask if the guard will be okay. And Warren says, sure, he'll defrost in a couple days. Clearly having no idea if if that will happen, but reassuring Andrew. The scene cuts to Amy, who is now dressed. She's in Willow's bedroom, and she's startled by a siren from outside. She points to the windows, which close immediately, and then to the blinds, which also close. This is one continuity problem I have with the episode and Amy's character because when she turned herself into a rat back in, I think it was season three, she didn't have that much control over her powers. She did that love spell for Xander, but it went wrong. She had turned Buffy into a rat. She was able to turn her back, but with Giles's help. And she only reversed the love spell with Giles's help. When she and Willow are tied to stakes and the townspeople are going after them, she turns herself into a rat. And, and the impression is that's that's the only spell she knows really well and can do just like that. Otherwise, presumably, she would have done something that wouldn't land her in a cage for years and would have saved Willow as well. So now suddenly Amy has such command of her powers. 
it's not that big a deal. I do enjoy the Amy storyline and there isn't really a way to get there without a little bit of hand waving and writing it as if Amy was this powerful all along. My other issue unrelated to Amy, but might as well cover it now, is the fact that the trio story feels wedged in while it it will prompt some developments and fill in some blanks in the other stories that are going through this episode, the two major arcs. It doesn't need to be that caper. It doesn't really need to be the geek trio at all, with one minor exception. And that, I think, contributes to my feeling that this episode doesn't quite hold together on its own. Now Amy says she felt like she was in that cage for weeks and she's upset because she hoped Larry would ask her to the prom, but surely she can catch up on everything. And then she sees Willow's expression and says, oh, oh God, he hasn't asked someone else, has he? And Willow says, uh, Amy, three things we have to talk about. One, Larry's gay. Two, Larry's dead. And three, high school's kind of over. And Amy says, how long was I in the cage? How long? The scene cuts to Buffy coming into the darkened house. She goes upstairs. Willow's now alone in the bedroom. So we don't know exactly how much time passed or where Amy is. Buffy wants to talk to Willow about something and she struggles to articulate it. She starts out something like, you know how we all make choices and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're less good. And she's looking down and she starts to say that lately. And then Amy walks in interrupting this. Greenberg gave some some good insight into where Buffy's at, which I think is so well conveyed by both the dialogue and the way Sarah Michelle Geller delivers it. Greenberg said the kiss in the musical could really be a one-time fluke, but then Buffy kissed Spike again in the last episode. So there's more to it. And she now is coming from this other interaction with Spike and wants to talk about it with Willow. Amy returning was the device they used to move Buffy more into darkness on her own because it it cuts off this moment with Willow. I, I normally don't like when when something prevents characters from talking, but if it's a legitimate thing that I buy, the character would not go back to that conversation. It can work really well. And here I think it does because Amy returning is a huge thing. And clearly Buffy was having a lot of trouble getting to the point with Willow. So it's that thing that you geared yourself up to talk about. And now something intervenes. And it's hard to get back to that place to be willing to do it. Buffy at first thinks that it's Tara. Amy gives a line that gives us a nice sense of the conversation she and Willow have been having. She says, the whole school, by a giant snake thing. Okay, still adjusting. Hey, Buffy. And Buffy says, hi, how have you been? And Amy says, rat, you? And Buffy says, dead. And Amy says, hmm. She goes downstairs for cookies. Willow tells Buffy it's nice having a magically inclined friend around and she brags a bit about how she figured out the spell showing how she feels she's pretty amazing she's really excited about that. 
Greenberg commented that this was picking up the thread of that confrontation between Giles and Willow about her use of magic. Because remember there, she when she described the spell bringing Buffy back, she was like, oh, so awesome. And the Blair Witch would have been afraid. And this is a little, a little bit less over the top description, but it's showing not just Willow's growing confidence with magic, which is there and can be very positive, but that she is going into this kind of arrogant territory. It stresses that she's continuing down that path. This to me is one way that Buffy's and Willow's stories diverge. They're both going to at least what the writers see as dark places. Buffy sees the spike attraction as a dark place. Willow is going somewhere the audience can clearly see as dark and all her friends think is, but Willow is in denial. Buffy struggles because she is not feeling okay about going there and Willow is pretty much diving right in as she's been doing. She is not hesitant to go down that path. Downstairs, Buffy asks Amy how she's doing. Amy says she's sorry about Buffy's mom, then talks about all the crazy things that have happened in the last few years, including the high school being destroyed. And Buffy tells her, oh, Gatorade has a new flavor, blue. And then Amy goes on about people getting frozen, Willow dating girls. Buffy asks her to back up to the people getting frozen. Amy turns on the TV and there is a news story about the frozen guard at the museum. We're about a quarter way through the episode at 12 minutes, 32 seconds when Buffy goes to the museum. Usually there, I am looking for the first major plot turn that comes from outside the protagonist, spins the story in a new direction and raises the stakes. And I do think we have one here. It is a little bit later, which is not that unusual in TV. Greenberg talked a little bit about story structure. He said in the writer's room, they put each beat of the story onto a whiteboard and write down the mini cliffhangers that happen before the scene goes to black. And he said in Smashed, It took a while to sort out what those were. They knew Buffy and Spike would finally have sex in this episode, but they didn't know when in the episode it would happen, which is is kind of fascinating to me, given that that's where the episode ends. The idea that at first they weren't sure it would end there. And also, I had assumed that they knew that Spike's chip not working on Buffy would be what sent them in that direction. But from what Greenberg said, they went backwards from Spike and Buffy will have sex. Now, how do we get them there? And he said it was really exciting when they figured out it would be Spike realizing his chip doesn't work on Buffy. And that is going to be that first major plot turn. But before that, Buffy is behind a crowd of people gathered at the museum. She is jumping up uh, to try to see over them. And she's got her hair in these pigtail braids. And I can't help wondering if that was on purpose because she looks sort of cutesy and the bouncing up doesn't feel very Buffy-like to me. It's this sort of cute imagery. She finally pushes through the crowd instead and sees the guard wheeled out frozen solid. Spike is there too, which does not thrill Buffy. He claims he came because he heard about this frozen man and maybe they could work together as a team. But of course, he alludes to the kissing again. Buffy now apologizes if he thought it meant more than it did and 
tells him she was thinking of Giles, and Spike says, you know, I always wondered about you too. And Buffy is completely grossed out, uh, continuing with my theme of why Giles never comes across as creepy, because immediately Buffy is grossed out by that. And then she explains that Giles left, she was depressed and vulnerable, ergo bad kissing decisions. But that's it, and she tells Spike, let it go. But he doesn't buy her explanation and asks if she convinced herself with it. He also tells her, quote, a man can change, end quote. And Buffy responds, you're not a man, you're a thing. Just as Spike's shift has not quite worked for me, Buffy's also has puzzled me a bit because it's never clear exactly why she is so hostile to Spike. I guess it is that she cannot accept her desire for him. It was different with Angel. Angel had a soul. She felt okay about falling in love with him, but with Spike, she doesn't. And uh, and she did say to Dawn last season, it, it, Chip and a soul are not the same thing. But Greenberg said something on the DVD that, also hit on why this bothers me a little, this line, which will be doubled down on. He said that line about you're not a man, you're a thing calls back to season five. At the end of it, when Buffy invited Spike in the house to get weapons, he said something like, I know I'm a monster, but you treat me like a man. And that was a big moment for them. That bugs me because I'm not sure it's justified this change that Buffy no longer sees him as a friend or an ally. And this is where we go to that question of theme. If the reason is that Buffy can't accept her desire for Spike, and so she projects onto him, you're a man, you're a thing. You're not a man, you're a thing. What is that saying about sexuality, about desire, about a woman's desire for sex without the falling in love that she had with Angel? Or are we saying something about it's okay to treat someone who is still on, on some level evil without a soul, but who is your ally? It's okay to treat them with respect, maybe to be friends with them and confide with them, but not okay to be attracted to them, to desire them. And maybe this is how, how Buffy would react, but I would have liked more understanding of why. Now Spike grabs at Buffy to keep her from walking away. She tells him not to touch her and punches him. He punches back sort of reflexively and she falls to the ground. And at 14 minutes, 20 seconds, Spike realizes he doesn't have a headache. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to support it, you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Lisa M. Lily, L-I-S-A, M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. You will get lots of bonus episodes. This season's alone include Buffy Rises from the Dead, Bargaining Part 2 through Afterlife. Also, Death and Consequences, where I compare the consequences Xander doesn't face for getting people killed in the musical episode compared to other characters who kill humans or attempt to do so. 
There's also a breakdown of the pilot episode of Angel and a couple of discussions comparing Band Candy to other episodes. The newest Patreon episode, so new that I haven't recorded it yet, but it will be there, is Magic as Metaphor, where I will look mainly at season six and seven and how well the magic as addiction metaphor works and doesn't. Join at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. If supporting the podcast monetarily isn't in the budget, you can still help the Buffy in the Art of Story podcast grow by telling a friend about it, sharing it on social media, or rating or reviewing it wherever you listen. All of that will help more Buffy fans find the podcast. Before Buffy looks up and sees, Spike pretends he's got a headache. She punches him again, and while he's on the ground, she tells him he's a thing, quote, an evil, disgusting thing, end quote. Likely her way of reminding herself, hey, Spike does not have a soul. Spike is a vampire. I need to keep this in mind. The scene ends with a close-up on Spike's smile as Buffy walks away, and we cut to a commercial. On the return from the commercial, Spike stalks the streets of Sunnydale, talking aloud to himself how thrilled he is with all his options. He approaches a woman in an alley. She screams and he tells her she should. He is a creature of the night, though some people forget that. As the woman begs him to leave her alone, he raves about how Buffy specifically forgets that, but he is dangerous, evil, a killer. Now it seems like Spike is trying to talk himself into something to convince himself of something much as he accused Buffy of doing earlier. He says aloud it's been a long time since he killed, but it's not like you forget how he just needs to do it. Quote, and now I can again, all right? So here goes. End quote. Spike vamps out, lunges for the woman, she screams, and then he yells and falls back. He got a migraine. And on first watch, I remember being shocked because as Buffy will think later, I thought the chip just stopped working. Drew Greenberg said that he gets the most questions about this scene in the episode. He thinks it's probably because it goes to the nature of Spike. What changes has Spike undergone? Because on the one hand, it seems like he gets that chip out and he heads right back to being evil. And yet it's not clear because Spike does have to psych himself up to attack this woman, which shows that he's conflicted. And Greenberg says, does Spike want to bite the girl or does he want to want to bite the girl? And Greenberg also said he thought it was good to leave some of that to the audience to figure out. There are definitely times it is stronger to leave things to your audience. So that could go to Buffy as well. My desire to understand more about why she is reacting this way to her attraction to Spike perhaps is the writers leaving it to the audience to fill in those blanks with whatever works for them. At 16 minutes, 28 seconds, Tara and Dawn are out for a movie and milkshake fun day. Abruptly, Tara tells Dawn she'll 
always be there for her. And then she says, quote, there's actually more of a lead in when I practice that at home, end quote. Dawn understands and Tara assures her she will never stop loving Dawn. At 18 minutes, the gang researches. They learn from the newspapers that the guard has been thawed out with hair dryers. Anya complains that Giles took the book she wants and says he has this thing about owning a book, like it makes it his property, which is pretty funny for Anya to say, given her embrace of capitalism. Greenberg said this was also to emphasize the lack of Giles because this is the first episode since he left and then the next moment is to emphasize how much Willow has changed because she pulls out her laptop. It reminds us she used to be the computer hacker and Xander and Buffy both think that's what she's going to do. And they say it's great that Willow's going back to basics for her research. Instead, she puts her hands over the laptop, they glow, and she gets a ton of information in a second using magic with the laptop. And Buffy says, I don't remember that part. Willow tells the others that a big diamond was stolen from the museum. She smiles. There's a picture and it's pretty. Xander tries to discourage her from continuing with the magic. Willow asks what's wrong. Anya breaks in that it's all bizarre. Willow's all, quote, la 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 with the magic, end quote. And they all know Tara up and left because of it. And now everyone's scared to say anything to Willow about it. Willow claims it's all fine. Little things started taking over. She and Tara saw them differently, so they got blown out of proportion, and this time away will help them sort through things. Clearly very much in denial about the role, the destructive role, magic or her use of it is playing in her life. She adds that she wants to keep working fast, because she doesn't want to leave Amy in the house alone too long. She keeps expecting her to do ratty things like lick her hands or leave pellets in the corner. On that last part, Buffy says, let's definitely not leave her in the house too long. At 21 minutes, the geeks admire the diamond. It's so sparkly and big. Warren jokes that size is everything and apologizes to Jonathan. They're ready to try the next phase when Spike comes in and interrupts them. Jonathan complains that Spike barged in without knocking. So Spike knocks on Warren's head and says, quote, knock, knock, robot boy, end quote. A nice reminder of how Spike knows Warren from getting the Buffy bot from him. And all three of them back off from Spike. So clearly they don't know that Spike can't hurt them. And Andrew and Jonathan aren't even sure that this is Spike. They've heard of him, but not seen him before. Spike tells Warren to look at the chip in his head, make sure it's working. And when they ask what he'll do if they refuse, he grabs a figurine, breaks it off a stand, looks at the label and says, if they don't examine the chip, Mr. Fett will be the first to die. The three quickly agree because this is a limited edition Boba Fett. Warren also reassures the other two that it'll be good to get Spike on their side against the Slayer because they're worried that if Boba Fett loses his head, they could lose theirs too, even if they do what Spike wants. Spike, however, is not going to make a deal with Warren. He's not going to become his ally. The deal, according to Spike, is they do what he tells them. Warren capitulates. Spike tosses the other to the Boba Fett. 
this is around the midpoint of the episode and normally we'd see a major midpoint reversal for the protagonist or a major commitment and here I don't see one even if we see Spike as the protagonist in the Buffy Spike plot and I'll talk a bit more about that. This is a fairly minor commitment. Yes, it is something of one because Spike commits to figuring out what is going on with the chip. He does take a little bit of a risk going to Warren, so I, I suppose you could see it as that, but it, it doesn't feel that major. And on that point of who the protagonist is, in the Willow plot, it's clearly Willow. And I see that as the story of her using more magic rather than trying to repair the relationship with Tara or address her issues. For Buffy and Spike, it's it's hard to say. With the protagonist, I look at who is pursuing an active goal, whose point of view are we in the most, and who has the most at stake. And Spike of Spike and Buffy is the only one who's clearly pursuing a goal here to get with Buffy, to get Buffy to admit and act on her attraction to him. Now, perhaps Buffy is also pursuing a goal. She is not as obvious about it. If that's so, her goal, I think, is to sort out her feelings about Spike because she does start to talk to Willow about it. A lot of it is going on in her head, which is difficult when you are in a visual medium because we can't be in Buffy's head, so we don't see that. As far as whose point of view we spend more time in, it is split pretty evenly between Buffy and Spike when it comes to the chip issues and their relationship, though I do think the final scenes are mainly from Buffy's point of view. And who has the most at stake? Well, Spike certainly has his heart at stake. He loves Buffy, but he has been there for some time, so it isn't really a greater risk for him in this episode. Buffy, on the other hand, has a lot at stake, including her conception of who she is, because whatever it is that is troubling her about her attraction to Spike, it clearly doesn't fit with what she believes she should be feeling and doing. So that gives her the most at stake. Now you can have a subplot or plot that has a protagonist and antagonist, and then there's a subplot where you flip those two. And a great example of that was season one, Angel, where there was a clear Buffy Angel plot where Buffy was the protagonist, and then there was a separate but intersecting and interweaving plot where Angel was the protagonist. I'm not sure we quite have that here. It is not as strong, and it's also part of why I struggle a bit with the episode. At 23 minutes 42 seconds, Willow returns home. Amy is anxious to go out. She's very jumpy. She's not ready to see her father, who will have too many questions, not only about where she was, but how she got there. And she kind of wishes she could make him forget the last three years. Willow says she could help with that, but Amy might want to sew her name and her clothes first. And she delivers this uh, in a very sad way, showing, as Greenberg says on the DVD, this undercurrent of sadness and loneliness. So no matter how much Willow tells others things will be fine and, and wants to believe that, 
there is that emptiness and loneliness in her, Amy takes full advantage of that because when Willow doesn't feel like going out, Amy becomes very manipulative and says, well, maybe Willow would rather sit home all night alone like in high school. And Willow says, no, she deserves some fun. She's single. She's free. She doesn't owe anyone. Quote, let's make with the fun, end quote. So another character talking herself or psyching herself into something. I find that interesting. Our three key characters here are all having to talk themselves into what they believe about themselves or what they should or shouldn't do next. At 25 minutes, 7 seconds, as Spike waits for the results from Warren's tests, Jonathan and Andrew try to make conversation. One of them says, I've seen every episode of Doctor Who after Spike confirms that, yes, he is English. And Spike finally says, Warren... Warren appears with printouts. Spike calls him Spock and says he'll need help interpreting because, quote, I don't speak loser, end quote. Warren tells Spike he doesn't know what the chip does, but its signal is coming through steadily. There is nothing wrong with it. Spike threatens Warren not to tell anyone, and Warren easily agrees, saying who would he tell he doesn't even know what this is about, and Spike says it's about the rules. Changing everything is different now, and he says nothing wrong with me, something wrong with her. This is 26 minutes, 29 seconds, and this is a reversal for Buffy because now Spike knows the chip does not work on her. So it, it comes somewhat late, but we do have a reversal for her. At 26 minutes, 44 seconds, Tara and Dawn get home. It's dark and the house is empty. Dawn asks Tara to stay, tells her the others are researching, and when they get back, Tara can have a chance to catch up with everyone. Tara thinks she ought to leave, and now Dawn does a little manipulating of her own, though she is doing it in a much sweeter way and with better motives. She says, it's okay, the TV will keep her company, but do you notice how it's getting dark so much earlier these days? Tara sighs, sits on the couch, but says she's only staying till they get back and just make sure Dawn's not alone. It has nothing to do with anyone else. Dawn says cool and cuddles up to Tara resting her head on Tara's shoulder. And to me, this suggests that though Dawn clearly is trying to get Tara to stay, to try to get Tara and Willow back together, that Dawn also did want the company. She she really didn't want to be by herself. Willow and Amy play pool at the bronze using magic instead of pool cues. They talk more about the changes since Amy was in the cage, including that Xander is engaged to a thousand-year-old capitalist ex-demon with a rabbit phobia, as Willow says, and Amy says, oh, that's so his type. Two guys approach. They want to dance. Amy wants to, which we totally understand. She's been in a cage for three years. Willow, though, just as clearly is not feeling like socializing. Amy offers something more Willow's style and snaps her fingers, and a pretty young woman leaves the woman she is with and approaches Willow. Willow's very awkward and uncomfortable. She tells Amy, no, she's still not ready, and Amy snaps her fingers again. The woman returns to her partner, who is not happy. Amy goes off to dance, and Willow stands alone 
alone watching. The scene cuts and now Willow is sitting at the bar staring at the olive in her martini glass and talking to it. Amy returns apologizing for being gone. Willow really does understand. The guys are not happy that Amy has gone back to sit with Willow. And they say you can't just work us up like that. Willow interjects that Amy said no. One of them says nobody asked you, Ellen. Uh, reference to Ellen DeGeneres. They tell the girls they need to relax and Amy and Willow exchange looks and together wave their hands and the two guys are suddenly very scantily clad and dancing in cages and Amy says she does feel much more relaxed now. Drew Greenberg said initially he pitched that Amy and Willow would wave their hands and the two guys would start making out with each other. And Joss Whedon said he understood where Drew was going, but he did not want to do that for two reasons. One, he didn't want to suggest that anyone could snap their fingers and just change their sexual preferences. And two, that it should never be a punishment to force people to be gay or for two men to make out with each other. That should never be shown as a punishment. So they shifted it to the dancing in cages. And that is a great example of being aware of what you are saying by the choices you make in your story. And I think sometimes writers are and sometimes they aren't. And I know for myself that's true as well. I've occasionally gone back and read something I wrote years before and suddenly thought, oh, I, that is not, you could take this away that I wasn't intending and I just didn't see it. Or sometimes something is so in the culture that the writers don't see it. I'm sure I have written things like that where 10 years later, suddenly you see something that you just did not before. But when you can, it is good, especially with, with key moments, to step back a little and just take a moment, maybe not on a first draft if it's going to hang you up or make it hard for you to move forward, but on a later draft to just ask yourself, what does this say? And you can pretty much always find another way to do that thing. At 30 minutes, 52 seconds at the magic box, Xander's excited he found the villain until Anya points out that he's looking in a D&D manual. Anya finally says they're not going to find anything through research. There is no such thing as a frost monster that eats diamonds. The talk segues back to Willow. Xander's not thrilled that she has another magical playmate. Buffy argues that, well, maybe not argues, but she does a counterpoint saying, but it is good for Willow to be out. And anyway, she's not that worried Willow has a level head, but Anya points out that's who you have to watch out for, the responsible types. And Buffy jokes, sure, Willow might go crazy and start alphabetizing everything. But Anya says when someone's super responsible and they finally get a taste of being bad, they can't get enough. And then, bam, a nice foreshadowing of Buffy's actions and the climax of the episode. And Xander comments, it's got to be seductive, just giving into it, going totally wild. (laughs) 
If you like mysteries and thrillers, especially ones featuring clever female detectives, you might enjoy my latest QC Davis mystery, The Forgotten Man, which is now available. You can find it at lisalilly.com slash forgotten man. So that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y.com slash forgotten man. I know I shared the description last time. I will give it to you once more. Her sister's unsolved murder has haunted her entire life. In this gripping new crime novel, lawyer Quilsey Davis is determined to solve the cold case murder of her sister. Shortly after that sister went missing almost 40 years ago, her body turned up in a grave with that of another little girl. The killer was never found. Quill's parents were devastated and never fully recovered from the loss, made more tragic because they are still the lead suspects in both murders. Now, after investigating other crimes successfully, Quill turns to her sister cold case, delving deep into a web of deceit that stretches back decades. Someone is bent on stopping her at any cost, but Quill vows to make her parents proud and bring them peace. Even if it means putting herself in danger, she'll stop at nothing to achieve justice. But will she find the killer or become the next victim? Filled with twists and turns, The Forgotten Man is a page-turning mystery that will keep you guessing until the very end. End. You can find it at lisalilly.com slash forgotten man. Buffy, clearly thinking about herself as well, agrees they'll keep an eye on Willow, but they shouldn't assume that everyone's being seduced. Then the phone rings. It is Spike. He's using a deep, scary voice, and he calls Buffy Slayer and tells her to meet him in 20 minutes alone. Buffy ruins the mood a bit by saying, Spike? Spike? And finally, he says in his normal voice, yes, it's him. We are around the three-quarter point of the episode. Usually here you would see a last major plot turn that would grow from the midpoint, whether it was a reversal or commitment, and spin the story in another new direction. And again, we don't have the super strong one here. There is a turn because not this phone call, but a little bit later, Spike will confront Buffy, and that will certainly spin the story. But then from there, it goes so quickly to their final confrontation. My struggles to find clear plot turns are part of why I think that this might be part one of a two-part episode. Because if instead you look at the middle of this episode as a first major plot turn, when Spike realizes he can, in fact, hit Buffy, and then you look at the end of the episode as Buffy's commitment, which we'll get to, those become very strong plot points. But Greenberg sheds perhaps a bit of light on this when he comments that the three episodes he wrote for Buffy including this one, none of them follow the Monster of the Week form. And he enjoyed that because he liked the conflict coming from inside the group's own relationships, which made me wonder, is it that I am trying to impose a Monster of the Week structure onto episodes that don't have a Monster of the Week? You might guess, since I've written a book, Super Simple Story Structure, that I don't think that's what I'm doing because you see this story structure in so many books, movies, TV shows. I use in a couple of my books and in my course, Pride and Prejudice, clearly not a monster of the week story, not a monster story at all. And yet it has those very strong plot turns, a super strong midpoint. So 
I don't think the issue is it's not Monster of the Week. Um, clearly, the issue is yeah, everyone just doesn't do things the way I think they should. <laughs> anyway, back to Spike and Buffy. She's surprised he's even calling her on the phone. She asks very loud if he has a lead on the Frost monster for her friend's benefit. She's obviously uncomfortable that Spike is calling her. She hangs up after they get into another conversation that has sexual innuendos. And Xander asks what Captain Peroxide wanted. Buffy awkwardly says nothing, then says he wanted to know if she wanted to patrol, and she told him she would not. On their way out of the magic box, Buffy comments, I'm just saying, all the things that have happened lately, okay, the the bank robbery, the jewelry heist, and Xander adds the exploding lint, and Buffy says, is it me, or do these things seem really, and Anya cuts in and says, lame, and Buffy says she was going to go with unusual, but yes. After Xander and Anya leave, Spike intercepts Buffy on the street. She is not thrilled. He tells her not to be so flip. And she says, what are you going to do, walk behind me to death? Spike tells her things might have changed. And he gets in her face and refuses to move. She slugs him. He hits her back hard and says, oh, the pain, the pain is gone. Buffy's eyes widen and she asks him how. And Spike tells her, you came back wrong. This is what I'm talking about with this is a pretty major turn in the story. But with the two of them, it's going to head right into the final confrontation. Before we go there, Drew Greenberg commented that Buffy realizing Spike is dangerous now sets up their final interaction. And my question is, why does that change things for Buffy? Is she drawn to the danger? Is it that she and Spike are now on a more equal basis? That's how I always read it, that now that they can fight each other, Buffy is not more powerful than Spike. And I I feel like part of it is she prefers a more equal dynamic on some level. I don't think that's where the writers are going for reasons I'll talk about as the season goes on. The other reason that occurred to me is back in the episode where Drusilla came back to Sunnydale and Spike told Buffy he was in love with her, Buffy commented to her friends that for Spike, being beat up is like foreplay. And maybe the answer is this is true for Buffy as well. We have seen before that sex, violence, it's all mixed up for vampires. And it also is for her, maybe not violence, but excitement. She fought with Angel. Fighting with Riley, uh, alongside Riley, is part of what sparked their connection. So maybe not surprising that now that Buffy and Spike can fight again, it does act as foreplay for both of them. Buffy thinks that Spike is playing a trick on her or he did something to his chip. He tells her, no, that's what's so great about it. It's her, not everyone, just her. She came back a little less human. They keep fighting physically as she insists that he is wrong. 
And Greenberg also said he got a lot of feedback for this episode about the explicitness of the sex at the end, which he thought was more alluded to than explicit. And I would agree, particularly compared to what what we see now. But he didn't expect to get so many comments about that. He thought people would be more concerned or unhappy about the fighting and punching between Buffy and Spike beforehand. He felt it was okay because Buffy and Spike are not regular people. They've always interacted this way and that Spike punching Buffy is not like punching another human. For a lot of this, you can see they they aren't hurting each other exactly. You don't see either of them getting bruised. It isn't the same as if you had two human beings doing this. Still, he thought that would be what might trouble people. We cut to Amy and Willow at the bronze. They're watching from that upper level, which is the same place Willow and Tara stood and argued about magic when Willow was going to shift everyone in an alternate dimension. Now she and Amy do all kinds of things. They change the band. They want more upbeat music. Not only does the music change, the band members who were male are now female. Totally different band, but it seems that they are the same people because they look puzzled by what's going on. There are still the guys dancing in cages. There's an angel flying overhead. Some other guys change sizes. Sheep walk through the floor. Back with Buffy and Spike, they're still fighting. It seems to be they're in a construction site or a demolition site of an old house. I'm not sure which. But Spike leaps up and grabs on a chandelier and swings toward Buffy. They're hitting and kicking each other. He taunts Buffy about being a lost little girl who doesn't fit in has no one to love she responds calling him poor spiky he can't be human he can't be a vampire he's supposed to kill the slayer but all he does is follow her around making moon eyes greenberg said the heart of this is that spike and buffy are both outsiders neither one really fits in the world anymore quote which they're happy to tell each other end quote So maybe that is the theme that the writers saw and meant, which was not so much Spike trying to isolate Buffy, where I commented how that line troubled me in the beginning, he's the only one there for her, and more that they are both in this not quite in the world, not knowing where they fit. Buffy, because she came back from the dead and doesn't really want to be doing her slaying job anymore, and really, she was struggling with her role as the slayer last season as well. So Buffy being in this place where she doesn't want to be the slayer. And Spike, as Buffy said, doesn't fit with the humans or the vampires. He tells her he's in love with her. She tells him he's in love with pain. So which of them is screwed up? And Spike, uh, in a line I think is very honest and uh, fun, he says, hello, vampire, I'm supposed to be treading on the dark side. What's your excuse? At 39 minutes, Amy and Willow look a little bored. Willow returns everything in the bronze to normal and wonders if there's something bigger. Amy agrees that it's way too early to go home. On the DVD, Greenberg commented that Willow needs something. She doesn't know what it is and she uses magic to get there. And here is where I see another parallel with Buffy who also feels something is missing in her life as Joss Whedon talked about with the musical episode. Buffy fills it with the excitement and danger of being drawn to Spike and with sex with 
spike. Now we are at the climax of the episode. That's where the opposing forces have their final confrontation and resolve it. Spike tells Buffy he wasn't planning on hurting her much when he found out the chip didn't work on her. She says he hasn't come close to hurting her, and he asks if she's afraid to give him a chance to. As he starts to speak again, Buffy kisses him. And Greenberg said it was important that Buffy kissed Spike first, that she finally does what she was afraid to admit she wanted. I like that too, and I wonder, does that make Buffy the protagonist? She makes the choice at the end, though you could see that as Spike prevailing in his goal because he has finally gotten Buffy to admit how she feels and to act on it. But Buffy has the biggest emotional change here, which makes me lean towards seeing her as the protagonist. This choice by Buffy, though, also adds to my view that this really is the midpoint of the two-part story because In a strong midpoint, the protagonist makes a commitment to the quest, throws caution to the wind, and Buffy is definitely throwing caution to the wind here. The music shifts, and it becomes this very sweeping, epic string music as Buffy and Spike embrace and have sex. The beams start falling down around them. Spike has his back to a a post. He's holding Buffy. She's facing him. It's reminiscent of the scene with Drusilla and Spike after he kills the Slayer in China and they're so excited and they have sex. This reminded me of that. I don't know if that was intentional. More parts of the house fall down around them and eventually Spike and Buffy fall backwards through the floor onto the lower level and the episode ends with them having sex on the floor. So we don't get any climax to the Willow subplot of using magic and bringing Amy back, there is really no falling action here. That part of the story that ties up loose ends and subplots, we left Dawn and Tara waiting for the others to come home. No one has gotten home yet. So that is another reason that I think this is part one. We'll see if that story structure works when I get to the next episode. That is it for Smashed, other than foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. If you found the way I talk about story helpful and want to try it for your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. If you're not sticking around for foreshadowing, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for Wrecked, where Willow dives into darker magic, putting Dawn in danger, and Buffy deals with the fallout of having sex with Spike. And we are back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. So much foreshadowed here of Buffy's and Spike's relationship that it will, at least for Buffy, never be romantic. That most of the closeness we saw them developing partly in season five, in the beginning of season six, those quiet moments on the porch. Spike being the one who understands her will more or less be gone. At least that's my memory that we don't see a lot of that. And part of it is that Buffy tends to run every time they start talking and connecting more like friends. 
But it's also because Spike continues to try to tell her that she doesn't belong with her friends. Something I'm not sure he would do, but I'll talk about that more when we get there. Calling him a thing, an evil thing, foreshadows that moment in Dead Things, the episode where the trio kills Katrina, and she's about to turn herself in. Spike tries to stop her, and they fight, and she is punching him out and saying she could never love him. He's dead inside, um, probably talking about herself. Also, this interaction foreshadows uh, or maybe stresses what Buffy already feels, her fear that she has come back wrong, and that will drive much of her behavior during the season, that feeling that there is just something wrong with her. Willow's casual use of magic here with Amy and Amy encouraging her foreshadows so much of Willow's arc for the season and certainly foreshadows the next episode or sets it in motion. Willow not dealing with the problems magic has already caused and instead diving deeper into it leads her to the warlock rack to doing these spells where she has fallout from it and doesn't know it's real so that demon chases her and dawn dawn gets hurt and eventually willow goes deeper and deeper into magic and when tara is killed toward the end of the season she completely becomes Dark Willow and is bent on revenge. So all of that is foreshadowed here. The revenge she and Amy take in this episode on these two jerk guys is kind of fun. It's understandable. It doesn't seem that dangerous until they start changing everything in the bronze. And Tara has warned us that that could go terribly wrong. Sure, Willow puts it all back, but if she couldn't, if she went too far down the road, it would be a disaster. And that is what we will see at the end of the season. There is some Dawn foreshadowing here. I really like Dawn in this episode. So I feel like it's too bad that once again, in my view, the writers and directors take her to this, this whiny place. Because in this episode, I like Dawn. She's very supportive of Tara. She appreciates Tara being there. And of course she wants Tara to stay and seems so happy when Tara does. And I get that this foreshadows how lonely Dawn will feel as Tara and Willow are driven farther apart, as she realizes how bad off Willow is, as all the focus goes on to Willow and even less on Dawn, that will be hard for her. But I really wish we could keep this Dawn a little bit more. And certainly we've got some foreshadowing because Buffy, while Dawn is coming home to an empty house, Buffy is off bringing down a different house with Spike. And there will be more of Buffy not being there for Dawn because she is with Spike. That is it for this episode. We'll see next week if Wrecked does complete a two-part story or if it stands on its own. Thank you again for listening. Come back in two weeks for Wrecked, where Willow seeks out more dark magic and Buffy struggles with her desire for Spike. If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on 
social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly, that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y, or email me at buffystorypod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.